we're moving on, as I mentioned, from Jesus' sermon on the plain or Sermon on the Mount, depending on however you want to look at it, whatever, whether you want to determine it's a separate, two separate events or the same event. Now, you can argue that. I'm not going to argue with you over it. Um, but this week, as we start into chapter 7, we've got to start by thinking about what just happened in chapter 6. So you just thought we were moving on. The reality is, is there's, it's important. It's important for us to see. Jesus had been uh, 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 teaching and, and commanding us to live a certain way. He's telling us, in fact, if you go back and think through what we've been studying, it's command after command after command after command to live totally opposite of what we naturally would live. It is not natural for us to love God first. That does not come out of our flesh. That is his work in us. It is not natural for us to love others, even our enemies. That's not natural uh, for us. And so he's commanding us to live 180 degrees different than what we are inclined typically to live. But here's the thing. Jesus doesn't just call us to this. The first thing I'd, I'd like to point out is as we study today, you will see Jesus actually do the things he's commanded us to do. Like he's not just saying, hey, you go do this and, 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 and do what I say, not what I do kind of thing. That's not who Jesus is. He is going to love his enemies. The man he's going to deal with today is a Roman centurion. Romans were enemies of the Jews. And he's going to love this man. He's going to do the very things he's commanded us to do. But the second thing I'd like to point out is that Jesus is not about behavioral modification. If we took the context of the Sermon on the Mountain, just, and that's all it was, you know, just those first two pieces of it, the love God first, the, the pursuit of God over everything else, the love of enemies, the love of others, that proactive, active, reactive love that he's called us to, that compassionate love that he's called us to. If that's all we ever thought about, about what Jesus taught us, if we ever only listened to his commands, we'd miss it. But his purpose is not just getting us to act differently. That's not his intent. His purpose in your life is not first behavioral modification. Jesus knows that different actions driven by some, something other than deep change are not lasting actions. He knows that. So he's not seeking to just make you act differently. What we learn from Jesus, if you go back to that sermon, he closes out with four parables that teach us about, about trusting him. You see, what Jesus knows, if your actions are going to change, it's not your actions we first start dealing with. If you're going to be able to love God, if you're going to be able to love others, even your enemies, it's not about giving you a set of rules to follow. It's about giving you something new to believe in. It's about changing what you believe that then turns and changes your actions. And if a person is going to endure in this life and live out the commands of Christ, we've already even sung about it. If we're going to enjoy the blessings and benefits, we've read scripture that talked about it. If we are going to be able to endure in this life with patience and joy, it's not because we got the right list of things to do. It's because we believed in the right Savior. And that's what he talks about. The very, last, the very last parable, building your house on the rock, digging down and putting the foundation on the rock, is about trusting in him. If you are going to stand in the storms of life, it is not about doing the right things. It's about believing in the right one. And today, as we, as we dig into this passage, that's the very first thing he helps us see again coming out of that sermon. In fact, this is the kind of faith not only that Jesus calls us to, but this is, this is the kind of faith that's expressed in this passage as he deals with this man. 
And we're actually going to see several different expressions of faith. And some of those are in the wrong things. But some of them, at least for certain, one of them is placed in Christ. So clearly placed in Christ that there's a point where Jesus is going to marvel. He's going to be amazed at the faith of a man. What a shocking thought. Well, let's read the passage and and, and you'll see what I'm talking about. We'll begin reading in chapter 7, verse 1. It says... After he had finished all his sayings in the hearing of the people, he entered into Capernaum. Now, a centurion had a servant who was sick and at the point of death who was highly valued by him. When the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent to him elders of the Jews asking him to come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly saying, He is worthy to have you do this for him, for he loves our nation and he is, one, and he is the one who built our synagogue. And Jesus went with them. Look, I mean, it's just amazing. Jesus, Jesus comes. He's like, this, this is Jesus. He's tired. He's been ministering. And now he's going to do more ministry. Jesus went with them. When he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I did not presume to come to you But say the word, let my servant be healed, for I too am a man set under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him. It means he was amazed at him. And he turned to the crowd that followed him, saying, and he said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. And when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well. He was healed. It's pretty amazing that, in my mind, it's pretty amazing that, that, that God, that Jesus, God in flesh, would be amazed at the faith of a man. Faith, it's, it's, not, it's, it's, it's so much more than just an intellectual ascent. It's, it's more than just having the data, like the information, so I know the information. Like I can sit in a classroom and I can learn the information. I can give you systematic theology. I can teach you 2 plus 2 equals 4. I can talk to you about what driving uh, is, is like on the roads. I can teach you all of, the, all of what the signs mean. I can give you information for all kinds of things. We can learn all kinds of information. We can even begin to assent that they're true. Like, yes, okay, the curve to the left, when I'm facing that big yellow sign and there's a black arrow that curves to the left, that means the road is at some point going to curve to the left. Okay, I know that's right. I know it's true. But it's not faith. You don't believe it. You're not trusting it in the the way that Christ has called us to, in, in the example of this man's life. You're not trusting it if you keep going straight when the road goes sideways. You see, faith is so much more. Faith is so much more than just this intellectual assent to some knowledge we've learned. Faith, the kind of faith that we're talking about today, is a trust that we begin to depend on that information. It begins to change the way that we act and the way that we think, the way that we feel, the way that we act and react, the way that we interact with one another. And here's the thing about faith. Every last one of us exercise it every moment of the day. The very, the very thing that brought you to this place was an expression or an act of faith. I mean, we could be at the lake right now, for crying out loud. And, and that sounds pretty good. It's hot outside. The water would feel good. 
We'd be running around on a boat and jet skis and playing and having fun, fishing, you know. I don't, I don't, whatever you like, you could be there doing it. And I don't mean to tempt you, but I mean, it's really. But you saw value. It's not, it's not that that's bad. It's not that there's anything wrong with being at the lake. It's not that it's a horrible thing, but you saw value. You, your faith tells you you believe that there's more value here, so it leads you, it moves you to come to church instead of go to the lake. Every time you climb in a car. On my way here this morning, I, I, I expressed faith. I acted on faith. I climbed on my motorcycle. And I was running behind. And I was late. And I was like, man, I probably, you know, what if the worst happens, I get in a wreck. And I'm probably less likely to get in a wreck if I'm in my truck. I'm like, ah, if God wants me there, I'll be there. <laughs> and probably not the smartest thing to do. I'm not, but kind of a blind faith. Maybe even putting God to the test. So please don't follow that example. But it, this is an expression of, of faith. Every time Amy climbs in the car with me, she does not like to drive. She'd rather ride with me and let me drive her. It is an expression of her faith. You don't, no, there's not a person in the world that leaves the house in the morning that climbs out of bed without some level of expressing and acting on faith. When you get up and go to work in the morning, you're believing that, that you're going to make enough money to provide for your family. When that quits happening, you quit believing that that job is worth your time and you begin taking it, you go find another one. We're always acting on faith. In fact, it's such a, such a part of who we are that it's not even a Christian thing that notices. It's not even a Christian perspective that people notice this. I was watching uh, uh, Brain Games. I don't know if you've seen this show. It's, uh, it's a show about, uh, well, just they, they're always talking about how your brain works, and they talk from all kinds of different perspectives, from sight and perspective and just all kinds of things, that the way our brain processes information. And this particular show, uh, it, it, it was on trust. And the point of the show was to, to prove to us that we need trust, but we're extremely untrusting. Like, we need trust. We're better off when we trust one another. This is the whole premise of the show. We need trust. It's better off, better, better when we trust one another, but we are extremely untrusting. You can go watch it. It's on Netflix. If you've got Netflix, you go watch it and you see what, what it's all about. But I made an observation when I was watching the show. I, I, I realized that as they were talking about being untrusting, it wasn't that people weren't trusting they just weren't trusting in the very thing that they were trying to get them to trust in. They were trusting in something else. Well, let me illustrate it this way so that you'll see what I'm talking about. For example, they did a series of social experiments, series of experiments to prove their point. And one of the experiments, they built a booth, they put a sign on the front, free money, big green letters, free money. You couldn't miss it, right in front of a, a, a walkway where where people, lots of people were going by. They put a big, clear plexiglass box on the, on the top of the, the booth or on the counter of the booth. There's this big, clear plexiglass box. The top is open, and it is chock full of money, green cash, you know, like the, pets, the stuff you still hold in your hands, the stuff that, you know, smells good, you know, it kind of feels good when you rub it on your face. That's the stuff I'm talking about, not the plastic card. I don't rub cash on my face. I'm just trying to be a little silly, but but I, you know what I'm talking about, this stuff that so many people desire and, and, and long for. And then they stuck the host of the show in the booth. And he stood there, and as people walked by, they read the sign, and he's like, hey, come get free money. Come get free money. Come, come on, there's free money. Just come take what you want. There's no gimmicks. There's nothing. Just come get free money. Almost no one responded. And when they did respond, there was like, uh, I'm not sure about this. And so in the interviews and in the process, they begin to tell us why people don't do this or why they wouldn't come to the booth and take the free money. 
And they said it's because they're untrusting. And yes, they weren't really trusting that the money was free, but they were trusting something. They were trusting lessons we've learned all of our lives. Nothing in life is free. If it's too good to be true, it probably isn't true. You see, they began to trust their own experiences and their own perspectives, and they began to trust in what they knew as opposed to what they were seeing with their own eyes. It wasn't that they weren't trusting. They were just trusting something else more. Every one of us exercise faith at every moment, and we are exercising that faith in ways that we are prioritizing what we believe over something else. We, 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 in one moment, we're believing that, that our perspectives are right and that we are good to go and that we can do this thing. I can climb on a motorcycle and expect to show up here because I have, uh, I have experience. I'm good at riding a motorcycle. I, I can build you out a list of reasons why I can come here and ride my motorcycle. I believe more that I'm going to show up than that I'm going to get hit on the way. Sorry to continue to use that illustration. My wife's sitting in the room, so. But the thing is, is that we're all exercising faith. The most important aspect of that faith is the object of that faith. That's the whole point of the sermon. That's the point, I think, that Jesus is driving home through this passage. The reason that Luke wanted us to see this is that we need to learn to believe in the right thing. You see, it's not that we have to be taught to believe we do that innately. We do that naturally. Even non-Christian people are believing and exercising faith all the time. We need to learn to believe in the right thing, to place our faith in the right object. And when we do, well, it changes everything. So let's just deal with it. We're going to walk through this passage. I'm going to show you four expressions of faith. You will see different objects of faith. And then we're going to walk away from from that with some application points, and we'll be done. So in verses 1 through 3, so here's where we start. So Jesus has been up all night the night before. He's praying on the mountain. He is seeking the Father. He comes down from the mountain From a great number of his disciples, he selects 12 apostles, and then he begins to teach. And although Luke only shares with us just very few verses on that sermon, the reality is Jesus had probably preached for some time. People had come from all over Israel to hear him preach and see him perform miracles. He probably spent a whole lot longer than five or ten minutes talking about the things that Luke shares in his gospel. We probably get a summary, and that's about it. But he comes down from that. He finishes teaching, and it says in verse 1 that he had, after he's finished his sayings, he enters into Capernaum. Now, the, the timeline, it seems as if this is immediately following. So he's come down the rest of the way from the mountain, and he walks into Capernaum. Now, I don't know, I don't know exactly what's on his mind at this point. I don't, I, I, I'm kind of imagining, I'm kind of, kind of assuming some things, but I'm just guessing that Jesus is tired. He's been up all night. He's been praying. He's been preaching. He's probably planning to go get a nap. Like he's going to go find some rest, but that is not what happens. As he comes into the city, a centurion hears that he's in the city, and the centurion says, hey, you Jewish elders, go talk to Jesus. And that's where we see the first expression of faith. You see, this centurion, he was a Roman soldier. He was, he, he was 
over about 100 men, maybe a little more, maybe a little less, and we're not exactly sure, but the centurions were a, a mid-level officer in the Roman army. It would be similar to like a captain in our army. But he had this servant. He was a man that was prominent. He, was, he had means, and he had money, and, and in his household he had servants. The, the word is doulos, and it's actually probably better translated as slave, but, but he had this, this servant that meant a lot to him that was very valuable to him. Now, a lot of people talk about why he was valuable. We don't exactly know. It could have been the role that he filled in the house. It could have been just a, a personal relationship. It could have been any number of things. But, but this servant meant a lot to the centurion. And so he was losing. Luke tells us that this man, the servant, was at the point of death. And he is hurting over this. He is suffering. He is, you, know, you know what it is to watch a friend uh, uh, pass. You know what it is to see their body failing them. And it hurts you as you watch them suffer. You're, you're hurting for them. You're hurting along with them. Well, this centurion was experiencing those very things. And he expressed his faith by not sitting at the man's bedside and doing nothing. But when he hears that Jesus is back in town, he's like, hey, would you guys go and tell Jesus to come here? Because he believes that Jesus can actually do something. I mean, just consider it. He'd been hearing about this man for for some time, he'd been hearing the reputation that had preceded Jesus for some time. So he has the information. He knows that Jesus can do something. He, he ascends. He, he's like, yeah, he really can do something. I've, I've, heard about his, I've heard about his miracles. I've heard about his power. I really think he can do something. And he begins to act. And he sends this envoy. He sends this group of people, a representation of, of himself, to go and speak to Jesus and bring Jesus back. That's the first expression of faith. That's faith. Every time that we act based on what we know, we are expressing faith. We all express faith. The most important aspect of that faith is what the object of that faith is. What are we believing in? So here's Jesus. He's he's walking into the city. The centurion is is like, I've heard these stories Go get Jesus. Just think about this with me for a second. We've been studying Luke now for, for, well, really since September. We've we've studied in Luke chapter 6 of of all of the the authority that Jesus has. We, We studied. I mean, people understood what Jesus was capable of. They longed to hear him speak. And we studied how, you can go back and read it, 16, 17, 18, 19. They're talking about this gathering of people that met him when he came down from the mountain and praying overnight. He comes down and it says that there's a large multitude of people from all over Israel. And not just all over Israel, but all the way from Tyre and Sidon, even beyond the borders of Israel. People are gathered to see Jesus. And if they could just touch Jesus, if they just want to get close to him, they want their diseases healed and they long to touch him, you can go read about it. But in the city, Capernaum, it's not, just, it's not just what's happening outside the city. The city, Capernaum, it knew. It knew what Jesus was capable of. Think back to Luke chapter 4 where Jesus had come into, the, into Capernaum and the sun had set, Sabbath was over, and as soon as Sabbath ended... People started bringing their sick and, and the demon possessed. And it says that taught, it teaches in Luke chapter 4 that de- Jesus cast out every demon in the city and healed every sick person that was brought to him. This city knew what Jesus was capable of. And so this centurion, knowing what Jesus is capable of, believes it. He trusts it. He expresses faith 
and, and he sends people to get Jesus to come and bring him. I just wonder, I can't help but wonder, are we acting on what we believe about Jesus? Or are we just having knowledge and, yeah, I believe it. Kind of like, yeah, I believe in Santa Claus. Are we trusting it? You see, we all exercise faith. But the most important aspect of that faith is the object of that faith. And the second expression of faith, we see it in, in verses 4 and 5. So here's this centurion. He gathers these Jewish elders and he says, hey, go talk to Jesus for me. I need him to come and I need him to do this thing. I know that he can do something for this man. I need him to do this. And the Jewish elders, they go. And when they get to Jesus, the they, they, don't, they don't approach Jesus. It doesn't appear that they approach Jesus in humility. It doesn't appear that they approach Jesus with any sense of reverence. They just walk up to Jesus and they're like, hey, we need you to come with us. They're not thinking about where Jesus is going. They're not thinking about what Jesus is doing. They, they just need Jesus to go with them. And at some level, you could say, well, they're expressing faith, that they're believing that Jesus can do something too. But I think that misses the nuance of the moment. I think that misses the nuance of, of what's actually happening. And yeah, they believe that Jesus can, can, can do something here. Certainly they know that Jesus can do something here. But isn't it interesting that the centurion is the one that sent them? And they weren't already going themselves. I mean, isn't it curious that they didn't believe enough that Jesus could heal this man, that they weren't already seeking Jesus out and they had to be encouraged to go do it? You see, the reality is when they approach Jesus, they approach Jesus, and, and their trust, yes, their trust is in Jesus, but what do they trust more? That Jesus ought to come do this for this guy because he is worthy. And in that moment, we begin to see the, 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 onion, the layers of the onion peeled back, and we begin to see the, the, their words betraying what their object of their faith really is. We're able, to, we're able to see that they are trusting more in what people do than in what people believe. In fact, in coming up to Jesus in the way that they did and in, in, in expecting Jesus to do what they asked and in pursuing Jesus to heal this man on behalf of this Jewish guy, they automatically infer that they are worthy to approach Jesus. Like they're, they're already under the assumption that they're worthy. Why didn't the Soterian go to Jesus? Because he wasn't worthy. And he knew it. They assume they are. In, in, in approaching Jesus and, and determining that the centurion is worthy of him going to the centurion, of Jesus going to the centurion, they've set themselves in a place that they are now the ones determine who's righteous and worthy of God's blessing instead of God. They, they don't need God anymore because we know. We know this guy is worthy. You listen to us. They put themselves in a position of authority over Christ. That's what they're doing. Look, you trust us. This, this guy, I know, okay, he's a Roman centurion. We know he's a Roman centurion, but listen to us. He is worthy. How do we know he's worthy? Because he's done what we want him to. He's met our standards. He's lived up to our expectations. What's the object of their faith? In part, the centurion man. In part, Jesus' ability to Heal this servant. But probably even more than that, the object of their faith is their own judgment, their own wisdom, their own discernment, their own worthiness, their own authority, their own plans and purposes. 
And this is where it gets a little bit personal. Because who of us is not guilty of that very thing? I know I am. Like, why, why is it? Why is it that, that, I, that I fear at times? Why is it that I have a fear of man and have struggled? Since, since we planted this church, I have struggled and fought with a fear of man. And if I don't make a decision that pleases everybody, then somebody's not going to be my friend. Why is it that I struggle with that fear? Because I believe in my own ability more than I believe in the power of Christ to plant his church. Why is it that we fight so hard to control every circumstance and situation of our life? Why is it that we get anxious and worry when we lose control? Because somewhere inside of us, we believe we actually have control. And we believe we've got a better plan and a better purpose and a, and a, and a better way than the Father who created and chose to save. You see, the reality is, is that we all struggle with this religious, this self-righteous type of faith. We are always putting things up in front of Christ. We are always trusting them more. And everyone, everyone that has ever existed, everyone that will ever exist, will exercise faith. But the most important aspect of that faith is the object of that faith. We see another expression of faith in the very next verses, 6 through 10. We'll see two, actually. As Jesus deals with these centurions, it's, it's pretty amazing because the very next thing he does is actually goes. Like, he didn't confront them. Like, he didn't say, you idiots, and nobody's worthy of me coming. Like, he didn't, he didn't challenge them in that, right? He didn't, he didn't confront them. He didn't rebuke them in any way. He just goes. And he goes to heal this servant of this Roman centurion. He is expressing, he is, he is living out the very things that he has commanded in the Sermon on the, on the Mount, Sermon on the Plain. And the, he, he's expressing them himself. He goes with them, and on the way, we see the third expression of faith. The centurion draws some people in that are close. So, so like it starts off with Jewish elders. Will you go talk to Jesus? Will you go get him to come heal this servant? The next group he sends are friends, people who are close, people who he can trust. And these friends go to Jesus, and they're like, Jesus, Lord, I don't deserve you being in my house. See, what's happened is that some, somewhere along the way, somewhere in this process, this centurion realized that not only was he worthy of, not, not worthy of going to see Jesus himself, not worthy of seeing Jesus face to face, he wasn't worthy of Jesus even coming to him wasn't worthy of sitting in the presence of Christ, wasn't worthy of receiving any blessing from him. And I think this is ultimately, this is where his faith starts to be so amazing. I mean, this is so shocking when you think about it. He was a centurion. He was a man of prominence and of power. He exercised authority. He wasn't somebody that had just, like everybody else is dead, so okay, you're going to be a centurion. No, they had to earn it. They had to demonstrate their capability. They had to demonstrate their ability to command, their, their ability to fight and, 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 and survive. They had to demonstrate that they were disciplined people, that they were noble people. They had to demonstrate these things. It wasn't a happenstance. It wasn't somebody that just walking along the street and, oh, that guy got some muscles. Let's make him a centurion. No. 
He was a centurion. He was important in the Roman culture. He was important in the Roman army. Not only that, he was obviously well thought of by the Jewish people. These people hated the Romans. Probably the only thing that would be, would be more ironic than the, than the Jews going to, 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 to bat for a Roman centurion, probably the only thing more ironic is if they had gone to bat for a tax collector. Like, so you have tax collectors. This is the people they really hate. These are traitors to their own nation. We've talked about them when we talked about Matthew. They hated the tax collectors, and, and just above the tax collectors were the Romans. It's just crazy that they were taking on, but, but, but he had impressed them. He was noble to them. He was good to them, and they appreciated him. They love your, the, our people. They have built our, he has built our synagogue. And just as a side, if you, you, you've heard us talking about building a building. If you know any centurions running around that got a bunch of cash that want to build a church building, have them come talk to me. I'd love to talk to them because we need a building built. So that's, that's just extra. And we'll think really highly of the person that does it too, just so you know. <laughs> but the, the, the reality was, is regardless of who he was to Rome, regardless of who he was to the Jews, he recognized who he was in light of Christ. He wasn't even worthy of an audience with Jesus. Not only was he wor- not worthy to go see him, he wasn't worthy for Jesus to come to him. That is amazing because how many of us really like to sit in that place and deal with that truth? Direct contrast to what the Jewish people thought, direct contrast to what Roman people would have thought, direct contrast to what we think even today. We actually begin to believe that we deserve what he's done for us and we demand him to continue to act in the ways that we expect him to. And when he doesn't, when he doesn't, our object of our faith, the expression of our faith is borne out when we get angry and get, and get frustrated with him and point fingers at him and, and ultimately deny him because he won't do what we expect him to do. But this is where the faith became amazing. But it doesn't stop there. The fourth expression of faith the fourth expression of faith comes immediately after. So, so the centurion has quit believing in himself completely. He's turned all of his faith away from himself. And he begins to express it and direct it at Christ. He is unworthy, but he sees Christ as worthy. He sees Jesus high stand. He sees Jesus as high standing. He sees Jesus' holiness, his power, his position. The centurion understands, looking at all that Jesus has done, hearing about the things that Jesus has taught, not even being a person of the not, not, not even being a person of the covenant, he understands. He sees the authority and the power. He understood, he understood that he didn't belong there. He didn't belong in, in Jesus' presence, but that Jesus was worthy, that Jesus was precious. And so he sends those friends. Go and tell him, don't come to me. But all he's got to do is say the word. You see, what this centurion man realizes is not only the holiness and the preciousness and the beauty and the majesty of Christ, he recognizes the power and the authority of Christ. I know what it is to exercise authority. I know what it is to go and tell my soldiers to do or not do. I know what it is to command a servant to obey and that it is done. 
All he has to do is say the word. He sees what no one else in Israel saw. He sees the power and the reach and the authority of a sovereign God resting on Jesus Christ. He doesn't even have to be here. All he's got to do is say the word. All he's got to do is say the word. And when Jesus heard this, it says that he marveled. That he was amazed. That he was shocked by. That he was surprised by. That he was appreciative of. This faith by this Gentile man. There's only one other time that this word is used according to, or, or, in relation to Jesus. One other time. And Jesus is preaching in his hometown. Nazareth, you know, you, we've studied it. And they didn't like what they had to say. He was going to kill them. Mark, in Mark's recollection or, or Mark's recording of that event, Mark writes this, chapter 6, verse 6 of Mark. He marveled because of their unbelief. He's amazed at the Gentile man's response of faith and the, amazed at the Jewish response of rejection, a lack of faith, their faith in themselves. And see, the, the interesting thing is, is they had all of the law, they had all the prophets, they had the, they, they, they had the, the covenants, they, they had all the advantage, and they couldn't see it, and so they trusted themselves rather than Christ. And this man outside the covenant outside the promises, separated from the scriptures, a Roman, for crying out loud, sees the power and the sovereignty, the reach of this amazing creator who chose to be our great savior. And I think, I think, I don't know, I just think, there's some similarities about every one of us in here. I think, if you're like me, if you're similar to me in this, that you would prefer to be heaped in with the centurion rather than the Jews. Like, I, if God's going to be amazed with me, I don't want it to be amazed about my unbelief. I, I'd rather even be amazed with my faith. You know, like, I want, I want this verse to be about me, that he is amazed with my faith. And really, I think the temptation is to look at this passage and ask the question, is our faith amazing to Jesus. Like, do I have the kind of faith that amazes Jesus? Would he be amazed at our faith? And in fact, there was a, a, a sermon I heard that, that asked that question. It was the whole point of the sermon. But, but as I listened, it dawned on me, I think that's asking the wrong question. I don't think it's a bad question. I just think it was the, the wrong question to ask. The question isn't, is my faith enough to amaze Jesus? But rather, is my Jesus big enough to produce amazing faith? Because that's what the centurion had going for him. That's what the centurion understood that all the Jews had missed. That Jesus was much bigger. He was much more powerful. He was much more sovereign. His reach was much further than they could ever imagine. The centurion understood the authority of Christ. That he could speak and it would obey. That the creation would, 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 would humble itself under him. He understood. He got it. He saw it. He believed it. And when he sent those people, he wasn't believing that Jesus might do it. He was believing that Jesus could do it. His faith was expressed and it was amazing. And so I, I think the question should be is not, it's not, do I have amazing faith? Do I believe in Jesus, the, a big enough Jesus that my faith becomes amazing? I'm afraid we don't, though. I mean, what keeps us from preaching this gospel of a gracious God to every person we know? Because we don't believe it's powerful enough. What, what keeps us walking in fear 
and anxiety. I'm afraid it's because our Jesus is too small. We don't believe he's really capable. I think we need to get to know another Jesus. I think we need to get to know the Jesus that the centurion saw. He doesn't even have to be here. He doesn't even have to walk in. He just got to say the words. He's just got to will it and it will happen. And see, so why is it that we're always running off to build our own kingdom, trying to do our own thing and protect ourselves and, and take care of ourselves and make sure that we get the things that we think will make us happy? Why is it that we don't walk in full obedience to the Word of God? Why is it that, that we'll deny His ethic of money and, and sex and, and identity? Why is it that we'll deny His ethics we believe in a God and a Jesus who is so small that he just barely gets us saved and then he needs us to keep ourselves saved. I think we need a bigger Jesus. But I don't think it's that he didn't present himself as that big, huge, powerful Jesus. The question isn't, is my faith enough to amaze Jesus, but rather, is my Jesus big enough to produce amazing faith. We're all going to exercise that faith. Every last one of us are going to exercise that faith, but the faith that makes the greatest difference is the faith that's placed in Jesus. The faith that's placed in Jesus. Oh yeah, faith in, faith in yourself, faith in others, faith in your experiences, faith in the things that you can do, faith in the, in the ways that you have ability to, to uh, do things. And, and yeah, it'll accomplish something. But when we believe in Jesus, we get to enjoy the benefits of all of his power, the presence, the promise. By grace, through faith, you have been saved. The, the, the words I was reading about in Colossians and praying through earlier in Colossians. Do we believe these things? Do we believe that Jesus has really removed us? Not just, not, not just going to remove us one day, but we no longer belong in the domain of darkness, but now we are citizens of the kingdom of Christ. The greatest faith, the faith that makes the greatest difference is the faith that's placed in Christ. And as we do this, our faith will get stronger. In fact, I would imagine that as you think about your life, you believe more in Christ today. If you're a believer, if you're a follower of Christ, if you have trusted in Him for salvation, I would imagine today that your, sal- your, your faith is stronger today than it was the day you walked into salvation. Let me encourage you not to stop there. Don't stop where you are. The way to strengthen your faith in Jesus is by getting to know Jesus more. I had a drill sergeant in basic training that he was always about, hey, you want to do push-ups? You got to do push-ups. You want to do a lot of push-ups? You got to do a lot of push-ups. And so that, 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 that thought, that mindset transfers over into so many things. And we're like, oh, if I want strong faith, I got I to gotta think about faith. I got to study faith. I got to know more about faith. 
No, you need to know more about Jesus. You need to know the fullness of who Jesus is. The, 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 the man in whom the whole fullness of God determined to dwell. You need to know him. You need to know the bigness of him. You need to know his power. You need to know his reach. You need to know this man, Jesus. So as we finish and as we come to the end of this passage, I just want to give you four attributes that, that, that I, I would encourage you. I would encourage you to, 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 to study, to know this man, Jesus. And it's the four G's to believe about Jesus. But if, if you've been here, you might know there was a sermon series I did that that was four G's, and it was in reference to God. Well, since Jesus is God, these same four G's apply to him. We can, I think we can all see how that, how that translates. But I also think these four G's are explicitly demonstrated in this passage, and so let me just share them with you. The key to strong faith isn't, isn't, isn't thinking about faith, it's thinking about Jesus. And so let me just share with you four G's to believe about Jesus to strengthen your faith. Jesus is great. I mean, I don't mean to mean he's, he's like, oh, that's great. I, I, I like that. That's pretty impressive. No, he's sovereign. Like He's over all things. And the, and the centurion got this. And we know he got this because he doesn't, he's like, I don't need Jesus to show up. I'm not worthy of him even stepping foot in my house to, to come into my, into my home. That's a, that would be an affront to him. I don't deserve that. I'm unworthy of that. All he's got to do is say the word. J.C. Ryle, commenting on this miracle, talking about this miracle performed by Jesus, says this, a greater miracle of healing than this is nowhere recorded in the Gospels. That's, that's a big statement. You think about that. That's a big statement. There's a lot of healings in the Gospels. A lot of blind people see, a lot of deaf people hear, a lot of, a lot of uh, lame people walk, lepers get healed. You know, they're made clean. J.C. Ryle, a greater miracle of healing than this is nowhere recorded in the Gospels. Without even seeing the sufferer, without touch of hand or look of eye, our Lord restores health to a dying man by a single word. By a single word. He doesn't have to go into this whole diatribe. He doesn't have to spend lots of effort and energy. He speaks a word. He speaks, and the sick man is cured. He commands, and the disease departs. And not just a little bit. It's not like he just was gradually getting better. The people got back to the house, and he was walking around. Matthew tells us that he was paralyzed. Luke tells us that he was at the point of death. We don't know exactly how bad this was, but maybe he was so paralyzed that he was struggling with breath. Maybe he was so paralyzed that... Or maybe even the paralysis wasn't exactly how we consider it today to be paralysis. There's no telling how differently doctors looked at things at that point. But this man was nearly dead. And these people, these friends of the centurion, walk back into the house and he is well. Jesus is great. His sovereign power is amazing. It reaches past everything. It blows every aspect of physics and understanding apart. He's the one that commands the world to move and it moves. He is great. And He has always been exercising this power. And even now, even now, we are under His authority. And here's the thing is, as we believe this, we no longer have to walk around wondering and wishing that we had Jesus in front of us. Like, oh man, if Jesus, if Jesus was just here now, then I could be a good Christian. Then I'd be believing like the sectarian person. No, you know this Jesus that has this power that extends past location and past times and past borders. It extends all around the world in all places at all times. He is holding all things together by the power of his word. And you, brothers and sisters, as believers in Jesus Christ, are the 
uh, you're not just a beneficiary of it, but you are the, the result of his power. When he said, live, you lived. When he called your spirit to life, you couldn't help but live and open your dead spiritual eyes to see the truth and believe in him. You are the product of his power. And as his people, you are the beneficiaries of this power. We don't need Jesus walking in front of us. We know this Jesus who is great. Do we believe him? Is he the object of our faith? Jesus is great. Jesus is glorious. He is glorious in his presence. This man couldn't help but see his own unrighteousness. He couldn't see, help but see his own unworthiness. And it's so different, so shockingly different, so catastrophically different than where our world is today. Like the world today, man, you've got to affirm everybody in who they are. Like you don't talk about somebody. You don't, you don't, you don't come against them and, and, and say anything bad. Today, if you, if, you, if you don't affirm people in who they think they are, who they want to be, you're a hater. And the only people we hate in this world are haters. If you're a hater, we hate you. But if you affirm every other lifestyle, every other, every other thought, every other identity choice, every other way of thinking, if you, if you affirm that, then you're good. But if you hate that, you're a hater and we hate you. We're so concerned with self-esteem and, and self-image. And I don't want to say that that's all bad. Please don't misunderstand. Please do not misunderstand. The problem, part of I think, is, I won't go there. It's not part of the sermon. I won't go there. But we don't like this idea of talking about or even confronting people with our ideas of unworthiness. It's not popular for preachers to stand in front of a congregation and call them sinners and unworthy. I like what Philip Ryken points out. He says, this is not a poisonous pessimism, but a healthy realism that helps us breathe the fresh air of the gospel. You see, when we finally quit believing in ourselves, when we finally quit looking at ourselves as worthy of God, then we can begin to appreciate his grace. We can begin to appreciate the work that he's done on our behalf, our undeserving, unworthy, unrighteous, deserving of condemnation behalf. That's when we can begin to see it. When we begin to recognize, take our eyes off of ourselves and recognize our sinfulness and what we truly deserve before Him and believe in Him as glorious, then we get to begin to appreciate and enjoy the beauty of what He's done. I was in a conversation recently with somebody who I believe is, is not a Christian, doesn't appear to be fruit in this person's life of, of Christianity I leave that to, to, to God. But ultimately, the, the question was asked, what do you think the difference in the paths that we're on? What's the difference in the path you're walking versus the path I'm walking? This is the big question that was asked of me. And I didn't even know how to answer that question in the moment. I just, I just was, I was kind of thrown off by it because, you know, I could come up with all my apologetic answers and all of my perspectives, and I, and I didn't even really know how to answer that. And it was about... I don't know, two or three days later, I was sitting and just praying and thinking through that question. What's the difference in the path that I'm on as a non-Christian and the path that you're on as a Christian? And I think this is it. In the light of the glory of Christ, in the light of his gloriousness, I've realized that I am an unworthy sinner who doesn't deserve to be in his presence that doesn't deserve him to act on my behalf, that doesn't deserve for him to do anything good for me. 
but I am the beneficiary of all of his goodness. All of his gloriousness I get to enjoy. I think that's the big difference because I quit trying to promote myself and I began believing in Jesus. Do you believe in this Jesus? Jesus is good. He's compassionate and tender. Everything he does is good. We see him doing all the things that the world appreciates, feeding the hungry, sight for the blind, hearing for the deaf, cleansing for the lepers, freedom for the oppressed and the captives. The the things that we long for, the things that we think determine somebody's goodness, he's doing them. Everything he does is good. Everything. Even when he upholds the righteousness of God and will not cower in front of a sinful people and he calls them on their sin. Jesus is good because God is good and even his commands are good. And even as we face difficulty and suffering, he is good. Do we believe in this Jesus that can use even the most difficult circumstances of our life for good? That he allows them for his purpose and his plans? This Jesus, he's good, he's gracious, or he's great, he's glorious, and he's good, and he is gracious. He's good, and we enjoy that goodness because he is gracious. If God was good, if God was good and stayed distant and stayed away from us, and, and then he could be good all day long, and it wouldn't matter a bit to us. But because of his graciousness, his grace is an expression of his goodness. It's it's the way that we experience his goodness. He was good without coming to us. He was good before he did anything for us. He would have been good as he condemned sinners. He would have stayed good even in that act. But yet God didn't stay distant. God didn't stay away from us. He didn't deny. He didn't walk away. He didn't turn his back on us. He actually turned and let us enjoy his goodness. Not because we deserve it. Not because of who we are, but because of who he is. Jesus is great. Jesus is glorious. Jesus is good. Jesus is gracious. The centurion knew these things. He knew that he wasn't worthy. He knew that that he didn't deserve to be around Jesus. He knew that, that, that none of us do. But he believed in a Jesus. He believed in a Jesus that was great. He believed in a Jesus that was glorious. He believed in a Jesus that was good. He believed in a Jesus that was gracious. We all exercise faith. The most important aspect of our faith is the object of that faith. Is the object of your faith Jesus? This big, powerful, beautiful, majestic, great, glorious, good, gracious Jesus. Let me encourage you to continue getting to know him, that your faith might be strong. Let's pray. Father, of course we know we're unworthy. Of course we know that we don't like to admit it. We don't, we don't feel great about it. It's a struggle. But God, we are so blessed that you sent your son to do for us what we couldn't do for ourselves. Will you help us believe? Will you give us faith 
Will you you fill us with this kind of faith that amazes us as we look at a Jesus big enough to produce amazing faith? I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.